Okay, I want to talk about different things. So this is going to be mostly a challenge on <laughs> what to make the title. Um, yeah, so I'm coming around. This is some like housekeeping thoughts. I'm coming around to the idea that podcasting is something I should put more time into. And I can reach people this way. So I have this weird love-hate relationship with Sam Harris, which is funny because he basically doesn't know I exist. <laughs> but but, but I, I've kind of like, some of the things he does, I'm, I just dislike and disagree with. And some of the other things he says, I also dislike and disagree with, but then I sort of come around to see uh, there, that he, that he had a point. And one of the things he hasn't been writing and he's, he's really a great writer. He's really a fantastic writer. Um, if you read the end of faith, it's just, if nothing else, just read it because it's such, it's a wonderfully crafted argument. Um, but you know, he's, he doesn't write, he hasn't been writing anymore and he's made some noises lately that he's going to start again. Uh, but he has a very successful podcast and he said, look, I can just reach more people, uh, with podcasting than I can with books. And, um, so I didn't like that comment at all, but then I, I'm thinking it's such a fantastic platform and we couldn't get this in the 1950s unless you went to work for CBS or something. This is really a case where the, the, the World Wide Web has really given us a new tool. And so people have, you know, you have this disparate set of voices and you have these podcasts. And, the, and unlike other social media where you have the very, very um, difficult problems with uh, control, with, you know, the participation in social networks, like, and I'm not the first to say any of this, but participation in social, social networks has a real downside because they have, we have a centralized situation and you have a capitalist incentive, which by itself isn't bad, but as it worked itself out in social media, a lot of social media is, um, it's not a pure experience, like you don't really own it, right? So it's actually a manipulative experience and you're kind of you're the manipulant. <laughs> you're on the wrong end of the stick. And so that's going to be difficult to kind of own your, 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 wor your creative world in that kind of, you know, milieu. Podcasting doesn't have this problem. Nobody tells me how long I should make the podcast, what I should say. There's no, there's no sense in which this isn't just a free broadcasting, uh, you know, experience. This just, this just isn't, you know, another, it's, it's another means by which or instrument by which I can get out my thoughts. And so I think that maybe put some thought in actually making in 2023, making this podcast, expanding the scope of this podcast, and also maybe adding some video and doing some interviews and so on. So I'm going to think seriously about that. So that's the good housekeeping comments. Um, now, I think I got to get this 
out about Vico. I'm reading Vico. And if you've, if you ever want to have a sort of strange experience, uh, get up at 6.30 in the morning and start reading Vico with a cup of coffee in a silent room. And <laughs> it, <laughs> it, uh, his whole sort of take on everything is, it's quite profound and it's really, really different than what we have uh, developed, like the modern set of ideas that we work with. We kind of work within frameworks, obviously. I'm not breaking new ground by saying that. But the kind of modern framework is so different, right? The way that we view concepts like religion, philosophy, rationality, reason, history, like we have this framework and that's not his framework. <laughs> he was, I don't know what his deal was, but he had a, his mind worked very differently. I think he was on drugs or something. I don't know, but he was obviously extremely well educated. He was a professor of rhetoric at, uh, in Italy in, um, the 17th century, I think, or actually the 18th century in the 1700s. And so he, there's actually, he's so iconoclastic um, that there's some dispute among scholars today whether he was actually pro, he, whether he was actually part of the um, Enlightenment or he was actually against the Enlightenment. So people can't even figure out whether he was, he, he's, he should be categorized as an Enlightenment th thinker or not. Now, famously, um, oh gosh, what was his name? Oh, it'll come to me. Uh, the Russian thinker, the University of Oxford Russian thinker who had the hedgehog and the fox. Isaiah Berlin, there we go. Famously, Berlin called him, you know, he, he said three, three uh, anti-enlightenment thinkers. He has a book called something like Three Anti-Enlightenment Thinkers, and he put Vico in there along with a couple of German thinkers that were less controversial. Herder, I think, was one. And um, well, I can't remember the other. My, I've noticed I'm 51 now in my, my memory. I think it worked better before. Although I think it's still okay. I'm not worried about it. But Herder was the other second one. And then the third one was also a German. And actually, he was actually, Herder was a student of the the other one so the there were two german but they were barely very solidly romantic thinkers they, in other words they represented they they it was not difficult to to they distinctly and directly attacked enlightenment ideas and so they became part of retrospectively they became part of the romantic reaction um and so um Berlin is a pretty comfortable bet. If Berlin thought he was anti-enlightenment, you know, he's probably anti-enlightenment. People like to talk about him as being in the part of the Baroque movement or a remnant of the Renaissance or something. And I just think he's hard to classify. But one of the things he says uh, that I think is... So he's, let me just give you a few idea, a few snippets of the things that he's saying. 
And reading his book is just a trip, by the way. Like he, he, all of a sudden he injects like all capital letters. It's like, what is going on here? Why are you yelling? Well, it doesn't mean that. He's just trying, he's trying to, but it wasn't a convention at the time. Like he just, no, this is how I'm going to use language, right? And then he'll use an exclamation point only for irony, never f- to magnify, but to, for ir- irony, right? So he has his own way of using the language. It follows from this axiom. And you're like, from what axiom? Like, I don't think he was, <laughs> like, I'll say this about him. I don't think he was a good writer per se, right? But he was an extremely powerful thinker. And it's possible that those two can, it's very, they're very connected, but it's possible that they can sort of, there can be a, a little bit of a, of a Venn diagram there where there's some, you know, there are some writers who are not fantastic thinkers. Like I would put Daniel Dennett in that category, actually. He's a better writer than philosopher. And um, then there are all a whole host of, in fact, it's more common to see a lot of philosophers that can't write worth a, uh, you know, worth a darn. And that's actually pretty common. But I would say that he's, he's, yeah, his prose is challenging. But so he said, he talks about, he goes on and on and on about these, with all these ancient myths. Like he unearthed all this stuff from Egypt. And he talks about how there was a race of giants at one point. And you're thinking, this guy is just crazy. And, but actually this is all in this mythology that there was this race of giants. In fact, the movie, Ridley Scott directed a movie called Prometheus that actually takes this idea from mythology that there was this race of giants, like giant people. And, um, he, t- he goes on and on and on about that. And then he sort of starts to get to the point and he says that, you know, Hobbes thought that he was breaking with religion when he wrote the Leviathan, but it, if it weren't for his immersement, he got it exactly backwards, that if it weren't for his immersion in, in religious ideas, he never would have had his ideas. And so, in fact, and then he said in general that, um, you know, Polybius said, um, if we would have had philosophers, we never would have needed religion. And he said, Polybius got it exactly backwards. If we wouldn't have had religion, we never would have gotten philosophers because philosophers needed presumably something like philosophers needed something to do and rationality can't exist in a void. And I think that's actually true, right? right? Like you can't just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a common, it's a modern conceit that you can just somehow be rational. Um, and yet if you look at the history of philosophy, going back to the enlightenment, it's basically a history of attacking prior ideas it's not creative. It's not poetry. There's nothing else. It's just attacking other ideas. And without, and people, I think they get, I, we all get that. Like, well, how can there be a Zeus, right? There's not really a Zeus. And, but what they, what I think people miss, they get the hat, they get hat, the one side of the coin, which is, yeah, this doesn't make sense. We should think about this a little bit further. doesn't seem like Zeus is real. But they don't understand that philosophy doesn't have anything to do but to walk around and carp about the non-existence of Zeus, right? So when people say, like, let us just come together and reason, um, that's just not a, <laughs> that's not a particularly powerful point, actually. It's a very beguiling point. I will grant everyone that. But it is not a particularly powerful point, 
Because let us just come together and reason needs to be situated in a much broader set of concepts, among which are non-reasonable concepts and concepts that come from the imagination rather than this, the, um, this, the dissecting part of the mind, right? And so um, he seems to be saying, it's such a weird idea. I've already basically lost it, which would be a real downer for me. I'm not sure about any of the listeners, but for me, it would be a real downer. But he seems to be saying that there's this, that we had this poetic language. So he he talks about how language itself has stages. We went through stages. There was the age of the gods, and then there were the, the, the age of heroes, and then there were the age of men. And there's actually a circular aspect to this, because once you reach the pure dissecting age, it starts to basically uh, dissect itself apart, right? So the project of actually escaping the imagination and escaping the, you know, the postulating Zeus's and Jove and so on, that process actually ends with uh, what he calls a recorso or a return because the imagination needs to be renewed. And so we go through these cycles. And I think people in the modern era figure we'll just go on and on with rationality indefinitely. And he argues definitively that that is not possible and that if you go back and look at all these great civilizations before, it never works that way. And then he gives reasons why it wouldn't work. And that, I find that actually fairly persuasive, that the, the, the process of dissecting everything, once you've reached an end to the imaginative core you, and everything becomes dissection. And once you get there, it's unclear how you sustain the human project, actually. So the, recur, the recourse or the return actually makes sense to me. Um, but he almost seems to be saying that um, when you have a, po- a poetic language, this is the weirdest thing that he's saying. And I, I really, really do myself a disservice when I don't put my thumb on the the page, but I, I have it, I have it in memory. But he, so when you have a poetic, poetic language, you have the flowering of the imagination, right? So the language actually supports the imagination, not the, not the, the, in, the not the rationality, right? And so, but when, when you have, so the, and the language is a function of you're in a, the, you, they're, they're, it's unclear, you know, the chicken egg problem here, but like when you have this language to express things and it, it's sort of, to use a really terrible phrase, to pull out of a modern context, it, it optimizes imaginative thinking. Um, and he almost seems to say, when you have that language and your imagination is um, at play, you actually do bring into existence Zeus. And so there's a sense in which Zeus is actually real. Once you change the language, you, you get this like, no, that's impossible. What's the evidence for Zeus and so on. And so we're really comfortable thinking that way, but we don't understand that we're on one side of a coin. And I think it's really important. I'm going to try to find a way to get like some of these ideas out. And I don't have just for the benefit of everyone, because I occasionally get asked this question. Look, I don't really have a religion. I don't really... You know, I suppose if I was on my deathbed, I'd be something like 
Catholic. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't probably be atheist, but that would, you know, look, I don't know. I don't, I'm not on my deathbed. I don't really practice a religion. I don't identify with a religion. I don't go to any formal church. I spend most of my time in a rational mode. Most of my time agreeing with people like Harris and so on. You know, when I read the end of faith, I went, yeah, this seems exactly right. Like, um, and so, you know, but I, I also don't, I'm not comfortable, I'm profoundly uncomfortable with the idea that you can dissect everything and that somehow provides an engine for civilization. Uh, and he, again, he almost, it's, it's I, I've got to go back and read the phrase, but frankly, I got so excited that I dropped the book down and decided to podcast. And now that I don't know that I could find it in real time, but he he almost seems to be saying that like with that language and with your imagination paramount, you just bring into existence the gods. Like they're just as real as anything else. They only become unreal when you change the language. And it's like, we cannot get our mind around that. Like that just doesn't, like there's just no way in heck that you could sell that to a generation, a Gen Z or a millennial, right? Like, like the, you know, the, 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 prototypical sort of skeptical of everything in the past, secular by default kind of, you know, you know, person on the street, like the law students say, right? Like there's just no way in hell anybody's going to buy that today. Like, no, but he seems to be saying that's because you're using this other language and the imagination is not what's driving the civilization. And it's like, Wow, that is a powerful idea. I mean, just the, the fruitfulness of that idea is, is just almost incalculable. So I think there's a lot to be said for... Uh, for uh, Vico repays careful reading and attention, whether you agree with him or not. It, you have a very good chance of improving your, your thinking about your thinking. And I would say that's a pretty good pay payout. Um, all right. So I want to move on now and explain something that comes originally from a guy named Cal. Oh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, look at, look at Sam Harris's latest podcast. And there's a computer science professor at, uh, I believe Georgetown. And his name will come to me in a second, but he also is a writer and he writes kind of what he calls left coast books, which he deigns to give the reader advice, which, you know, by the standards of the New Yorker or the East Coast literati uh, is a <laughs> decidedly lowbrow uh, pursuit, right? So you, you don't, if you write for the New Yorker, you don't produce a, an advice list like say somebody like Tim Ferriss who now lives in Austin by the way uh, but you know he, he wrote the four hour work week and it's basically there's just lists of stuff that you should do if you want to get this result and so this guy writes books that cover a lot of interesting ideas he has a, a degree he has a PhD in theoretical computer science from MIT so the chance of him being a, a hack or a you know, like a, a subrate thinker is fairly low. He literally has a PhD in, in theoretical computer science. In other words, 
really difficult stuff. He got a PhD in it from a really, really good institution. But he produces a lot of this kind of books. One of them is like how to take control of your email. You know, like he writes this kind of stuff. And um, anyway, he's got, because he deals with algorithms uh, as his job, his day job as a computer science professor, he's got a really clear idea of how the web works and how different social media works, right? And he also talks about this because he's one of these minimalist guys. He's part of this minimalist movement. So he talks a lot about like, you should get off the social media and here's why. But they got into the subject of TikTok and I'm going to get this into my book. It's fascinating. So TikTok is becoming a threat to Facebook and Facebook has what you might call a legacy technology, which is it uses a, it, it, it uses a social graph. What is a social graph? A social graph is just a, a database record of your connections your, to your friends. And that's, that's a social graph. So, right. And so, you know, Facebook leverages the social graph, which is a real world set of connections. Presumably like there's some connection between what you're doing with your friends, like who you consider your friends in the real world and who you've allowed onto your social graph. Presumably those aren't randomly distributed, right? Like, so, you know, (laughs) right. So Facebook uses that kind of information in order to figure out what kind of ads to place and how to manipulate the, your web page, you know, your experience, if you will. And what TikTok does is it goes, as he put it, it goes all in on the algorithm. So it doesn't care. It doesn't care who you're connected to. Uh, TikTok doesn't. It, it, it lets go of the possession of that type of information and goes all in on the algorithm. So it basically, your experience on TikTok, I've never used TikTok. I'm just going off of what this computer science professor said. I assume, since he was saying it to 300,000 people on the Paris podcast that he's accurate, um, <laughs> it would be a rather scandalous if he wasn't. Um, but what, uh, and it would be rather disastrous for his writing career. So let's just go ahead and assume that he's speaking the truth. Um, uh, although I'm going to do further research on it. Um, so when they effectively, the TikTok designers rejected the social graph as unnecessary. And they said, look, we're going to create a big, um, basically everything gets embedded in a big vector space. I think people don't understand what a vector space is. They think that you're just trying to say something highfalutin. No, what a vector space is, is like, it's basically think of, the easiest way to think of it is, Here's a vector space, um, a Cartesian coordinate system, right? X, Y coordinates. I mean, you're going to have a bigger vector space than this, which just means you're going to have different, more axes. And you can't visualize this, actually, because after three dimensions, we don't know, right? So, but in terms of mathematics, that vector space, it just, it just, it can have any number of axes and then you get different properties, and so when you say like you project, you project information into a vector space, you're locating it as dots. I'm going to explain this so that it's not like using big words thing. You're locating it as dots in this coordinate system. And then there's a way of computing 
the distance between the dots. And here's how this works. The dots are going to represent content that you like. And the distance com computation, the smaller it is, the more those two pieces of content are similar. And so you first figure out what content this person likes, and then you compute small distance measures for similar content, and you deliver that content, okay? Now, that's all that's going on. It's a lot of computation. The math is a little complicated. Um, I don't know, by the way, mea culpa, like I don't know what they're using, eigenvalues or whatever the hell they're using, but um, I don't do that, that kind of computer science. So um, I, don't, like, I don't know the math at that level of detail, but I understand, I understand quite well the concept of a vector space because I majored in mathematics and it's a very common thing that you project information into this space and then you compute similarity measures and so on. Euclidean distance would be one simple, which is still in use, by the way. Um, and there are other ones. Um, support vector machines actually compute in a, um, they compute into a, a slightly different vector space. And support vector machines are called wide margin classifiers because you, you, try, to, you try to make the margin as wide as possible so they're actually an inverted way of doing it. And by making the margin wide, you're also, you're inversely, you're reducing the error, right? So you're pushing out to squeeze down the error rate. And that's a wide margin classifier and that's a different kind of vector space calculation. But okay, so TikTok does that. And then they, so what your experience on TikTok is, is first let's figure out what dots you like. And then let's figure out all the dots that are closest to those dots. No social graph required. It's purely algorithmic. Okay, so your experience is, is that you basically get on and you watch a video and if you like it, you swipe up. And within 40 minutes, you, the TikTok algorithm has basically zeroed in on what you like and it's, he put it as a frankly uncanny experience. It's so powerful. It, it, like, it's almost like this thing knows you, right? Like you have this black box algorithm that has no concept of who you like, what the, your social graph is, no real idea about you at all other than your swiping behavior. And yet it's delivering reliably within 40 minutes of this training exercise, it's delivering just content that you're gonna just, you're absolutely gonna just love, right? And this is the experience that people result on, you know, report on TikTok. Now, this is scary because look at, the, look at the direction of the tech. Look at what's happening. So now Facebook using a social graph is now legacy. In fact, they're really in trouble, just as a business note. Facebook is really in trouble. They're going to lose a lot of market share. Uh, because what they're trying to do is they're trying to go, they're trying to recreate, they've decided they're going to ignore the social graph that they have in their possession. And they're going to go ahead and do the pure algorithmic approach to compete with TikTok. So, but doing that, they're basically abandoning their own business model and their IP, right? And they're going to try to compete with TikTok as a legacy company. They're going to lose, they're very likely going to lose. And so this is really dangerous for Facebook, but who cares about, I don't, you know, so what? Um, that's an aside. So 
I'm worried about the direction, the arrow, the direction of the tech, right? And we're getting into this area now where it's almost indistinguishable from just consulting some kind of, you know, Oracle at Delphi or something, right? Like, so if that technology gives this experience within 40 minutes, then it's actually not wrong. But there's nothing in that technology that knows anything about you. In fact, there's nothing to plumb about the tech at all. It's just a bunch of numbers, right? And so, and yet it's got this really strong connection socially to all these people like that, that are users of the system. And um, I, don't, I don't know where we're headed with that. Like it reminds me, that's a black box with immense power, which reminds me of the middle ages, right? It reminds me of, a sort of sub-rational, and it's certainly not imaginative, right? Like we're in this very strange place right now where there's no reconstructing anything because there's nothing there. It's just a black box world that produces these results. And so like that seems, it almost seems like a throwback to the dark ages where nobody really knew what the heck was going on because it was just it was all submerged in tradition and submerged in weird, you know, like bleeding. You know, remember bleeding people and like, oh, you're sick. We got to bleed you. It's like nobody had a clue what the hell was going on. People just, you know, like medicine, everything. It was just that's why they call it the dark ages. There were, you know, we had this ter- the, there was a feudalism, which is just was just this horrible wreck of an economy. You know, I mean, it's just like everything was back ass words. And there was just, but medieval or, you know, the dark ages, as they say, you know, that was also characterized by everything was a, was a black box. You couldn't figure out why, why does gold turn into, there was some weird explanation and nobody, like there were different explanations and they invoked all kinds of, you know, symbolic this and that, and nothing really worked, you know, um, it took hundreds of years to get any decent technology and and so you know, but that it was be, there, there was no there was a sense in which like that was a, that was the kind of like that was an era where you could not shine a light, and TikTok is a tech where you cannot shine a light. <laughs> like it's just I don't you know it's it's there's something very troubling to me that we're going into this place. Um, now, I've got more thinking to do because you know, I'm very skeptical. Uh, it's 30 minutes. I try to keep these to 30 minutes. I'm very skeptical of this idea that we're going to make everything rational so that the mind just dissects everything and somehow. Um, so there's more thinking to do here because like that's not what I'm getting at either. But like this, but moving all the tech into this black box, um, it just strikes me as incredibly dangerous. Um because at the very least, what we have to do is provide plausible explanations for events. Okay, I guess I would leave it at that. And there's no plausible explanation for this. Like, why did this, you know, why, you know, why something is going to happen rather than something else? Once you get into this kind of like, you realize, oh, yeah, we've got systems that are so powerful and so large that we can just project everything into this uh, vector space. And then voila, here's your experience. You know, it's like presto, right? It's like, and so I don't know, you know, like at the very least, we've got to hold on to, there has to be some way to glue stuff together 
so that we don't just have miracle stuff happening everywhere. Otherwise, we're back to like, I don't know. We're not back to the age of gods, as Vico said. That's the confusion. I'm like, that's, this, is not a, this is not an era of high imagination. It's an era of total stagnation and the inability to come up with a plausible human you know, condition. I mean, a, a, a plausible stratagem for organizing ourselves and, and, and organizing our, our goals for the future. Like, it's just, you know, this is a kind of no man's land. What I think it is, is, you know, potentially is the beginning of the unraveling of the, what the rationality in Vico's world works for a while because everybody's got something to attack. This is why people keep trying, like the enlightenment was, you know, for, I don't know, 200 years after the enlightenment, all philosophers talked about was whether a God existed or didn't exist. And so you had, you know, the rise of materialist philosophy and analytic philosophy, and let's just analyze language Logical positivism, let's get rid of, you know, all these concepts that aren't, you know, empirically under, empirically verifiable or logically undeniable, right? Like this, all of that stuff was generated because you had something to fight. You had a dragon to slay, which was these, you know, the, con- the religious concepts, the religious worldview. And so, but that just runs out eventually. Like you can't just keep making these arguments forever. And then you're, you're stuck. And then according to Vico, you end up kind of unraveling the whole thing. Just the whole project un- ends up unraveling. I would say that the tech is not helping us arrange, organize, and inspire our lives right now. Um, I don't know what to say about it. I guess I'll leave it at that. I'll let listeners decide how they want to think about that. I think it has a bunch of practical consequences in terms of there will probably get new companies. Um, and I guess I'll leave it at that.